0: Chronicle. Welcome back to the Companies and Markets show. On the docket today, the changing face of ESG in light of warfare in Ukraine, Russian stock volatility on various platforms, and why is the FTSE weighted so heavily towards value shares? All that before sitting down and talking to Deputy Editor Dan Jones about his long read this week, Running the Rule Over the Subscription Economy. Welcome back to the Companies and Markets show, Thursday the 10th of March, the year of our 2022. Joining us on the podcast, Alex Newman, hello. Hi John, how are you doing? A good, thank you. Julian Hoffman. Hello John, good, good afternoon. Hi uh, Julian, and uh, a voice that will be familiar to IC podcast listeners, host of the IC interviews, Mary McDougall.
1: Hello, shoved on the other side.
0: I know, I know. There was no no IC interview this week, but we couldn't we couldn't have one week of you off the air. <laughs> <laughs> um Mary, we're going to get started with something that you actually wrote last week and that we touched on a little bit in last week's companies and markets show. And that's in the continued fallout of the uh conflict in Ukraine. Um there one of the implications is for ESG and um and ESG funds and your piece uh your piece was
1: the changing face of ESG
0: the changing face of ESG um so yeah i guess what are the main implications for the conflict on ESG
1: well i think this is a huge topic and it's sort of going to take a long time to unravel i think there are three key areas to this so the first is do you want to be doing business with an autocratic state? Um, ESG managers were scrambling to remove Russian stocks before the before the um, stock exchange was suspended. J.P. Morgan was removing um, Russian bonds from its ESG government bond index indices. And so you might ask why they were there in the first place. Um, so that's the first question: like where you actually want to invest. It's it's complicated. I mean, you could argue for. The ethics or the morals of investing in in most places. Um, the second area which is going to be heavily impacted is, is defence. So funds, ESG branded funds, have typically excluded defence companies. Um, now defence might be seen as a social good. Uh, yeah, you've already seen, you've seen some that one of the largest s- banks in Sweden has done a U turn from um, not supplying any. Any money to defense companies, and and now it is. Uh, you'd seen, and you'd also seen before. Um, defense companies find it quite hard to raise capital because people wouldn't support them. So there was an instance: Serco um, dropped out of the bidding for a uh, government contract managing nuclear weapons before because ESG minded investors wouldn't support it. So there'll be a big. There's a shift in attitudes um, towards defence companies, which we're already seeing. I know you talked about that last week. And the third area, which is a huge one, is um, energy and energy security. So ESG-focused funds, lots of them have exclusionary policies on fossil fuel. You know, people who have said that the use of gas and nuclear as well, which which are less um, less heavy pollution as well, n- nuclear isn't, but that they've been undermines they undermine the green vision um might pause for thought uh, you've yeah europe's been left um quite heavily exposed you've got italy considering reopening coal plants i think boris johnson said this week that um the uk might start upping its production of gas um, so yeah it'll be interesting to see how ESG fund managers tackle this. On the other other side, energy security is going to be important, maybe more, um, there'll be more investment into renewable energy. So that might benefit too. But I think another important thing to say on ESG generally is it's very poorly understood and difficult to interpret. And it's actually about analysing those factors. So it's not to say that you can't invest in anything. So if you're investing with an ESG mindset, that's a little bit Meaningless in a way because it's about how you analyse these factors and which ones are excluded and which ones aren't. But as the industry is interpreting it currently, those sectors that we've discussed have generally been excluded. Sorry, that was a very, very long answer. (laughs) it's,
2: It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, one of the points, I suppose, is it shows ESG branding. I suppose is a little bit of a misnomer, isn't it? Because as you're saying, it's 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 a style of it's a style of talking about investing and approaching investing. And when you stick a label on it, you're sticking a label on basically the debate around ethics, which is always going to shift, given the the world we face, and 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 and, and you know how uh, how suddenly, for example, supplying weapons to a country looks like the right thing to do, as opposed to you know always always likely to to cause uh, harm to others. So it's it's um it's kind of a chimera, isn't it? ESG, even though, but I I, I sort of think take from this is that it's not going to disappear just because it seems like a muddled concept now. It's it's, it's almost in for, reinforced the idea that ESG is an important lens, but it will just, it will keep shape-shifting in a way.
1: Yeah, or maybe to an extent it was, disappear is not the wrong word, but maybe it was going to become, ever, become proliferate all areas of investment yeah. that it's not really talked about anyway, and maybe maybe this would accelerate that.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's... Okay. Yeah, I mean, ESG investing is investing, isn't it? Really, it's it's, it's everything. So, so. You know. I mean,
3: I've, I've always thought there's always been an element of magical thinking around it, doesn't It mean, hasn't quite. Uh, it's never theoretically, sort of found firm foundations. I mean, I, I, you kind of feel that it needs several years to settle down, doesn't it? And then, and then you can make an, an accurate assessment of what it actually is, on a theoretical basis. Uh, maybe, maybe that the, the problem. I don't know.
0: Mary, another article you wrote, and this time it's in, in this edition of, of the magazine, uh, page eight, if you have your magazine in front of you, listener. Um, it's about uh, trade trade cancellations and forced sales add to Russian equities risk. Um, and so this is all about market volatility causing liquidity issues on on various platforms. So um, what's going on there?
1: Yeah, this is quite interesting. There's sort of a few, few things to pick out. So... First of all, the steel manufacturer Evraz and precious metals mining company PolyMetal, which are two companies that have large parts of their businesses in Russia, but they are they do have primary listings in London. They were the first and second most bought shares on the platforms this week um, because their share prices plummeted, and opportunistic investors think that maybe they can get a dividend for more than what the share price is, um, but. Actually, I think today, the shares in Evraz were suspended um, because Roman Abramovich, when he got his sanctions, he's he's a 30% shareholder, I think, in the company. So that that shows one risk of (laughs) investing in these companies. Um, There was a moment where the London Stock Exchange had to cancel the trades in polymetal for about 20 minutes on the 8th of March because it was just... um, well, the exchange said that it was been down to erroneous trades, but there's been a huge amount of volatility, and a really interesting one on the platform Etoro, um, which is an Israeli platform. They ended up, so before this was on the last week or the twenty. This was on the 25th of February. They um, automatically sold, so they had about 12 Russian stocks on the platform. Um, and they automatically sold one of them when it got to one cent. So the share price plummeted, and because of the systems and controls they had, they I don't know maybe accidentally sold them. And so this I was going to say. Up- so that so
0: that's a was that an error in there, not an error, but like a, a an issue with their automation or?
1: Well, they sent me quite um, they sent me quite vague wordings as to how it happens, but they do have they do reserve the right to be able to do that. And they said they said it, they called us and. I, can't remember. I, I it was an operational um issue, but yeah they've let, they've reimbursed all the customers at the price that they paid them for because you know they sort of they sold them as they were at the, the very lowest they could possibly be so there are these interesting liquidity nuances coming up
3: actually it's, it's interesting to move on from that mary because the, the it ties in exactly with the uh, the various kind of mea culpas that have been coming out from the asset managers this week so we had several uh having to come out and say that they're um they're losing quite a lot of money in russian investments so what the biggest one was probably um aberdeen was saying that they're going to lose two or three billion of their clients money in in russia Um, You had uh, legal and general investment management. uh, Initially, they said it was 0.1% of their total assets, but uh, Bloomberg did some digging. It turns out they're one of the second highest holders of Russian-denominated dollar bonds, Um, so nobody knows where that's going to end up. Uh, and there are banks as well who are, who are coming out with some really scary big numbers like uh, Banco Unicredit, which is in Italy, they, they're saying that they could lose seven billion just on their Russian operations, if assuming that they now have no value at all, which I think everyone is now saying, well, they, they're never going get to get anything out of that, uh, that situation as long as the, the, the sanctions and the conflict continue. Or oh, oh, the Russian state just seizes it in the end. I mean, that, that could be the, ult- the ultimate um, the ultimate loss. Um, Yeah, so it's all dovetailing quite um, alarmingly, really, from that point of view.
1: Yeah, it's like a horrible nightmare that won't end.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. But I mean, it's interesting because the same thing happened. I look back at the history of this. The same thing happened in 1922. So uh, loads of investors in the UK lost money in Russian railway shares after the Bolsheviks decided they weren't going to pay the debts from the czarist era so it's just kind of like history is repeating itself again in um you know in a strange sort of tragic and comic way at the same time yeah happy 100 year anniversary exactly yes <laughs> i i did wonder if you if you still I, I i knew someone who had these i think it was actually john human had some russian railway bond uh some certificates from from way back that he sort of collected from somewhere but um uh, it'd be interesting to see if you could re- redeem them now.
1: <laughs> I think we know the answer to that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll have to look to the investors' chronicle archives. I'm sure there's was a lot, a lot of railroad bond buying a hundred years ago when we were going to weekly press then as well.
3: <laughs> yeah, just just as we just as we went to war with Russia
0: again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good to know time is a flat circle after all.
3: <laughs> well, it, it, it is it's like Karl Marx said, isn't it? It's the history repeats itself first as tragedy and then as farce. But anyway, <laughs> all right,
0: and and just moving on to um, to our final topic of the day, um, Julian, you pointed out to, to us all earlier in the week um, an article by in the Financial Times um, looking at the weighting of uh, value to, to growth stocks in the in the footseat.
3: Yeah, this is a yeah. So uh, this is a really interesting um, position um, that the ty- the Financial Times has taken. But um, apparently, the the valuation gap of the FTSE 100 is now at a thirty year high. So if you can com- if you compare sort of global equities, the average value of global equities with the average value of the FTSE, it's now grown. The the gap has grown hugely since twenty sixteen and. Well, the ft reckons that this is a partly a product of a byproduct of uh brexit so that there's a certain amount of discounting that's going on because of that uh, and that's finally feeding through into the valuations but also the, there's a this thing about the, the the indices being dominated by a very small group of um sort of mature companies that that really are kind of old school really and they they generate lots of cash and they power lots of dividends but they're not growth stocks, and um, the, yeah, the, the, the Financial Times, uh, the Lex column was saying, well, this is actually this may not be a bad thing. You know, having a, a an, an index that's kind of stable uh, and not particularly expensive, uh, from an invest from a value investing point of view, is actually quite sensible. I, I don't know what other people's view on this. I mean, you picked up on this, Alex. I think didn't you um, in the meeting? And uh, w- yeah. what was your take on it?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, just just to jump back to it, when when um, I think the the valuation discount you're referring to, I think they rank that on a f- forward priced earnings. So the the FTSE 100, for example, is about is on a sort of P of 12 at the moment compared to an ex UK FTSE World index of 18. So obviously the the world index is going to have a higher uh, weighting to pretty racy uh, expensive US uh, tech stocks um, given they are you know some of the largest companies in the world but yeah i mean we've talked about it you know we talk about this a lot uh, given our our kind of uk not if not biased then focus um on the mag but and we did a we did a webinar a couple of months ago on value in uk multinationals um where you know this i suppose this topic was starting to loom into focus because of rising concerns about inflation and what that was going to likely do to the discount rate on on you know uh Premium, 30, thirty, forty, four times earnings um, uh, uh, growth stocks, but I mean, I think it's re- it's really interesting in light in light of the last couple of weeks because, um, because uh, you know, one of the criticisms that you alluded to of the FTSE 100 is it's still dominated by this this kind of old old world heavy industry, uh, mining, oil and gas kind of sectors of of yesterday um and that and that that you know that's it's not a it's not a great place for sort of long-term wealth ac- accumulation and, and 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 growth but actually you know when events swing into sort of hard hard realities and commodities just blow through the roof as they have been doing in the last couple of weeks it's actually it's actually not a terrible place for um uh for you know portfolios to be in and, and and that's kind of reflected in the FTSE 100 being down, well, it's still down this year by 2%, but it's nowhere near the, the, the 10% plus falls in the S&P 500 and NASDAQ even more. So, um, so yeah, yep. it's, kind of, it's kind of a, it, it's, you know, I don't want to sort of say it's the FTSE 100 renaissance because um, because there's a lot of consumer-facing stocks in there as well who are going to, you know, who are going to have to handle slowing economies uh, and um, and higher inflation. Uh, and that's no easy task. But rising interest rates that benefits the insurers and banks that you're always looking at. Julian, higher oil prices great for BP and Shell. You know the the Australian miners are are just drowning in cash. It's um it's kind of been it's kind of a better place to be. It looks like at the moment in in amid such uncertainty than than in Silicon Valley. Um yeah, Mary, I don't know if you, you had thoughts on this as well. Well,
1: I was actually I was chatting to the CIO of Canical this morning and I and I was just asking about asset allocation. I was quite surprised to hear him say that they are upping exposure to the US because in times of you know great uncertainty, the mm. US has been the sort of dominant economy that's done better. And and he was yes, there are some stocks sort of um that have had huge sell-offs, but his view that was the companies like Amazon are not actually that highly valued. Um, interesting, which which was interesting. I was yeah.
2: so I, I, I was one surprised. thing I saw Amazon doing this week the uh, announcing a buyback seemed like a I don't know a, maybe a slightly biased here given that we recent recently wrote a sell idea on or, or Arthur wrote a, an, a sell idea on Amazon, but it, it seemed like a rather Amazon move that they're you know they're known for this relentless innovation and and market share gobbling but now they're financially gearing their way to higher share price um
3: yeah well, so it's interesting a sign of, yeah. it's a kind of financial maturity isn't it i mean that's that's what it is um i mean that must be an admission that some somewhere in the hierarchy of amazon that, okay well we're going to struggle for to achieve to achieve the same growth rates year on year so we'll we'll start doing what older companies do which is you know buy back the shares and up the dividends, isn't it? I mean, the, the thing that nobody else ever talks about is what the effect of inflation is on those high, high value shares. Because when, you know, when you look back, um so sort of in the seventies, I mean, I was born in the seventies, so I'm kind of obsessed with that decade. I'm, I'm sorry about that. um The uh the, what they had at the time was called the Nifty Fifty, which is the the equivalent of the Nasdaq, the equivalent of the higher rated stocks that we we see now, higher rated tech stocks, and it's like people like IBM, that kind of that kind of generation and <clears throat> what happened in, in the early 70s that when inflation took off that that really affected the um the high valuations of those stocks and and also their underlying earnings couldn't rise as quickly as um say a miner or a oil company could in the same situation because obviously those that resource shock feeds through quickly to companies who are digging stuff out of the ground whereas if you're trying to price something for a consumer ultimately a, a tech stock um, is a consumer based um product um that becomes incrementally more difficult when inflation takes off so uh, there is a there is a there is a link between the you know a crash in those um in those valuations and the rise of inflation and and, and i don't know whether whether people have taken that quite on board yet but you know as we said before history repeats itself in one way or another
2: yeah i suppose the other benefit of, of buying us stocks now is you end up holding dollars as well which you know in times of uncertainty, it's not a horrible thing, given what could happen to currencies this year. Um,
3: oh, isn't, yeah. I mean, have the gold, um, the gold sort of vending machines popped up again? I noticed that was a thing, <laughs> wasn't it, a few years ago? What? It's, it's in Germany. <laughs> oh, okay. I was gonna say, yeah, it, no, in the not, railway. In, not in Devon then. Not in Devon, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I remember being in the, ra- the railway station in Frankfurt and, and there were sort of these, these vending machines where you could buy small gold bars um, and I was kind of amazed that the, the vending machine was still there. In some way. <laughs> you sure that wasn't the chocolate bar, the gold, the gold bar? Um, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't have a fair two thousand one hundred pounds on me to, uh, to, to buy one of those. It better be a pretty good chocolate bar if it was.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, at the risk of of being kicked out of our studio, we'll just. Um, move on to one final point which is that uh this week in the magazine we have a special isa supplement uh, and mary you've been involved in, in writing this quite a lot um so without giving too much away um would you like to share some of the lesser known isa facts that you think people should know
1: yes so we we're actually publishing a um a podcast next week on what to invest your isa in so i won't i won't um Save that. <laughs> we we'll go over those details now. I think, yeah, ICAs are, as we all know, the staple of British savings. Um, they've become more complex over the years. I think there are there are two things I'd like to highlight. One, lifetime ISAs. On the face of it, they seem like a no-brainer. Um, you can pay in up to four thousand pounds a year. The government will top it up by twenty-five percent, which is really really generous. Um, but the caveats are that that they were designed to help you buy your first house so you can put it towards your first property so long as it's under a value of 450,000, or you can access it when you're 60. So, you know, London house prices the average house price in London is now 430,000. Um, and house prices in the UK have gone up and I looked this up for the podcast, but for the ISIS thing have gone up 24% um, since the Lifetime Ice was introduced and the, the amount. The £450,000 has been static. So if you want to access the money before, you have to pay a 25% penalty. Now, on the face of it, that sounds like you're just paying back the 25% that you got. But actually, you're paying back some of your savings too. So if, for example, £1,000 is saved, it receives 25%, £250 on top of that, and um, then if you had £1,250 withdrawn, the 25% charge would then be £312.50. So that's a um, 6.25% loss. So you would have been better off not in it. So that's one thing to know about lifetime ISAs. The other thing that I've written about a lot, and it's a little bit of a pet project of mine, is flexible ISAs. So this is where you can um, take money out of your ISA and put it back in again with any tax year, without that encroaching on your your allowance. So it's not what Stocks and Shares ISAs were designed for, but it's quite a useful feature to have because you don't know, you know, life happens and you might need money for it. And lots of people have written to me saying why they use it. Um, maybe it's to buy a car or to do a house or for a bridging loan. But when the government introduced it in 2016, it wasn't made um, mandatory for platforms to offer it. So most of the banks do now. But the major platforms don't. Um, Hargreaves Lansdowne, Asia Bell, uh, Fidelity and Interactive Investor don't offer it. But most of the other platforms do. So just something to think about.
0: Something to think about. Thank you very much, Mary. And yeah, as we say, there, there is a, a ton of ISA content um, on the IC website and in the magazine this week as well. Joining me on the podcast now, I see deputy editor Dan Jones. Tried to book Dan for last week before, realizing he actually wasn't uh, wasn't around, wasn't on holiday. Do you have a good break, Dan?
4: I did. It was lovely. Thank you. It's good to be back at the uh,
0: at the coalface, as it were. <laughs> yes, good to good to have you back, and uh, good to um, good to talk through this uh, this long read that you've written, uh, running the rule over the subscription economy. Um, it's on page twenty-four of your magazine, if you've got that in front of you, listener, and obviously on our, our website as well. But Dan, just firstly, what um, what inspired you to write, you know, your two and a half thousand words on on this in the in the first place?
4: Well, I think it's a really interesting topic. I mean, uh, you think of subscriptions, you you think of you know media, typically, uh, obviously things like the uh, the IC itself. Uh, traditional print publications but in you know in the modern world uh, you think of streaming you think of um, uh, music perhaps things like that as well and I think really over the last two years people have uh, noticed from a retail point of view just perhaps how many subscriptions they are now signing up to they are um, a part of you know during lockdown obviously that kind of business really boomed even though it was very much taking off beforehand but what I wanted to explore was, was kind of the the fact that these subscription models aren't just uh, retail-focused. You know, they're they're starting to penetrate into into all sectors, really, all parts of the economy. A lot of businesses are um, really interested in in shifting to to that kind of model. You know, getting their customers to um, sign up to a service like that. You know, whatever sector they're in, be it manufacturing, be it education, uh, be it all kinds of different parts of uh, of the, of the uh, company's landscape.
0: Yeah, I guess the 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 key question, I guess, is what what's the main appeal of a subscription model over
4: over you know
0: business to business?
4: I think it's the um uh, ultimately it boils down to the recurring revenue streams that you can build up if you uh, manage to get yourself a a solid subscription solid subscriber base. Um, I mean, really, from that stems you know reliable cash flows, higher margins, better returns on capital. Uh, it really provides, you know, great things for a business which uh, management I think are very keen on. They've looked at, you know, what was really the the trailblazer over the last few years for this kind of model. In many ways, was a, a SaaS subscription um, software as a service rather companies. You know, it, it, tech companies in the U.S. Uh, Adobe, I suppose, is the kind of the prime example in terms of a company that used to sell products to its customer. Base now it sends sells them on a subscription basis. You know, you you pay for your uh, Adobe Acrobat or what have you uh, on a yearly basis. You tend to value and need that for your business, so you're always going to be coming back. Um, Investors really like this business model as well. Um, You can tell that by the multiples they've been paying for SaaS. So uh, I think management probably have an eye on on that kind of valuation as well. But but also investors like the you know reliable. Uh, cash flows, reliable customer base, the ability to compound those those earnings once you you get a, a, a customer base and stick to it and build on it year on year. So, so that's the benefit for companies and for investors. Um, for customers, the the idea is you know it provides flexibility. If you're a business buying this kind of uh, subscription, you know you can spend uh, the money out of your opex budget rather than capex, which is quite attractive to a lot of finance departments. Uh, for a retail consumer, the idea, I think, you know, is promoted very much as being about flexibility, again, lower upfront costs, and there's even a bit of, you know, eco-friendly uh, um, angle to it as well in terms of, you know, ownership is not uh, what it was, we are told, and uh, renting, effectively, these things is the way forward from a uh, environmental perspective. <laughs> you,
0: you mentioned... Um... The impact of lockdowns and COVID, and um, was was there a was there a noticeable, uh, I guess, boom in in people signing up for subscription based services in that in that period?
4: Yeah, absolutely, certainly, and certainly in the um, the retail consumer space, um, you saw a massive increase. I think uh, one of the things I touch on in the piece is a uh, Bernstein. They put out a note end of last year. Uh, According to their analysis, I think it's about a fifth of UK retailers developed a subscription service or product during lockdown. Uh, That was on top of you know 28% who already offered one. So that's a pretty big chunk of the market. Um, Conversely, uh, I I do spend a lot of the piece trying to explore some of the uh, other sectors looking at these kind of models and some of the potential pitfalls. Despite all the benefits I've just described, Uh, conversely, there's perhaps the sense that that, uh, lockdown. know the pandemic maybe put the brakes on a little bit some of the hoped for progress in other sectors uh, just because the financial implications of shifting to this model if you have an existing product-based business can be quite significant you know you um, you know you know you've got all this um, say if you're an equipment manufacturer for example uh, you sell it on a case-by-case basis suddenly you're going to start you know doing something similar not quite the same as leasing it out Uh, you know that has big kind of balance sheet implications you might need the financing to to, to, at the beginning as you start to shift to a point where revenues come in over time and you know the pandemic wasn't really seen as the ideal time to do that due to the financial uncertainty so from a retail point of view absolutely it's really boomed Uh, from a b2b uh, point of view maybe not quite so much but it's still definitely a growing trend
0: Mm. and and in researching for this piece were there any sectors that potentially surprised you that with how how much they're looking into becoming subscription-based i mean when i was reading it i was surprised to to read about the likes of volkswagen volvo and motoring who say they're they're really shifting onto a, a cloud-based um cloud-based softwares
4: yeah um uh yeah man, car manufacturers are perhaps really an exception to kind of the the Sort of stuttering progress in the equipment in the manufacturing uh, space that I just discussed, because because yeah, a, a lot of them are really pinning their hopes on uh, this kind of model for the future, or they say they are. You know, we hear a lot, obviously, about the shift to to EV. Um, you know, that being a massive future growth area for automakers, and you can see that in their public statements. But they've also been really bullish about you know the benefits of software. Uh, one thing I touched on the piece, the Volkswagen CEO was saying just the other month that they actually think software is going to be the big differentiator between cars in future, implying that, you know, the, the hardware, the car itself is really going to be commoditized and it's going to be the, you know, the things on the dashboard that, that really start uh, selling it uh, to consumers. I mean, to me, that feels instinctively um, a bit of a reach. You know, I think we're still a long way away if if, uh, <laughs> if we ever get there from a situation where people aren't pricing their cars on, you know performance and and look and branding but uh but the manufacturers yeah are really keen to uh you know almost commoditize the hardware side of things and then really make a lot of money from uh the kind of maintenance the kind of software updates they can provide to um, the in-car services that kind of thing
0: great well well thanks a lot dan i'm gonna i'm gonna leave the rest of your article for readers to seek out and read themselves um as I say, in this week's magazine and and on our um, website. But thanks so much for that brief, brief look at it now. Um, and we'll catch up with you again shortly, I hope, Dan.
4: Great. Thank you for having
0: me. The Companies and Market Show was edited and produced by me, John Rogers. And don't forget to get in touch with any questions or comments or feedback on the Companies and Markets Show you can reach me at john.rogers at ft.com that's j-o-h-n dot r-o-g-e-r-s at ft.com we'll see you next week